Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kimberly. With that said, it's always exciting to have you all here today. I know it's April and it may not feel like April in some parts. I know one of our listeners usually is in Boston and uh, I think it is snowing there at the moment. So welcome today. We'll provide uh, our own sunshine over the next hour. And again, the enthusiasm in my voice and in Kimberly's voice is because every time we all gather, it reminds us that you all are here to learn about COVID, take messaging back to your congregations, your communities, your family, your home, and share with them the latest news to stay updated. And in doing so, you all are promoting health and preventing disease. You all are saving lives. You all are our front line. I, as, your, as a physician and my other physician colleagues and nurses, we are your last line of defense. So please, please recognize you and what you are doing is incredibly valuable. So thank you for that. We have great guests today, as we always do. Again, and these guests, keep in mind, they're selected based off of kind of the themes and ideas you all have been emailing us and requesting. So keep them coming. Today, I will go over the numbers, as I usually do, stay grounded in a sense of where we're at with this pandemic. And then after that, I'm going to go over the hot topic this week, the pause of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So I'm going to go ahead and share why did we pause, what is the complication, to give you a little bit more insight into it. And I think this is incredibly important in order to recognize that medicine and healthcare great benefits, you know, to end a, a pandemic, but these interventions all come with side effects. And we need to be cognizant of that in order to weigh the risks and benefits appropriately. So we'll tackle that today, and then we'll go back to Kimberly to introduce our amazing guest and launch into today's topic. So without further ado, where are we with the pandemic? Globally, we are at 139 million, 936,833 cases. Deaths are at 3,003,252, giving us a global mortality rate of 2.1%. Here in the United States, we have 32,228,330 cases. Deaths at 579,024. So giving us a mortality rate of 1.8%. And here in the state of Maryland, 433,359 cases with deaths at 8,342, giving us a mortality rate of 1.9%. And again, those numbers are broad, and I know it kind of seems like a bleak uh, moment, but we've added to these numbers the vaccine rate. Right now, we are at for the state of Maryland, for the state of Maryland, those who are fully vaccinated, 26%. One out of four mail-in-years are vaccinated. Amazing. Keep it going. Keep it going. Community members, keep helping the community have the understanding of the vaccine in order to make sure they can prioritize it to see if it is reasonable for them to pursue it and get it. Having immunity is one way definitely out of this pandemic. 
So now let's go over exactly where we're uh, at with this week's news. So, oh, actually, before I dive into that, one thing I want to share with you all. So I, uh, last week, if it wasn't obvious, I apologize, I, I had another 14 days straight of working in the intensive care units with COVID-19. And the one thing I want to share to the listeners in order to help us overall, this time last year when I was in the intensive care units, I think the youngest patient I had, I was looking back at my notes, the youngest patient I had was about uh, uh, 56, mid-50s. Right now, the oldest patient in our ICU was 47. So please, please make sure the community is staying up to date with COVID-19 information. I say this because I'm seeing, as, as are my colleagues, a really big drastic switch in severe COVID-19 cases really impacting younger individuals. So keep up the good work of disseminating this information. Now let's dive into the vaccines. So right off the bat, we have two technologies approved here in the United States and in Europe in regards to vaccines, two technologies approved for emergency use. Moderna and Pfizer uses kind of a cool new technology. I say cool because it's just it's the simplicity of it, right? We put into the vaccine literally the genetic code to make the spike protein, to make it from our own cells. We get the, those nucleic acids and we pump it out. And then the other technology is using one that's been around since the 1990s. It's called a viral vector. Viral implying you're using a virus. Vector, vector is like the science word for kind of like a taxi cab. So the virus, acting like a taxi cab, is going to transport something into your body. In the 1990s, it came about for genetic therapy, right? People with certain rare diseases who lacked certain genes, we would give those genes back using a virus. Then that same technology was utilized for, and still utilized in, chemo, in uh, oncology where you can give the virus medication for it to deliver to cancers. So we've been using viral vector technology for quite some time in addition to using it as a vaccine. So AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson both use the viral vector technology. They use a common cold virus and that common cold virus transports like a taxi a spike protein and kind of displays it into our bodies in order for our body to understand the, to, to identify the spike protein and be able to make an immunity against it. So with that said, what has gone on and with Johnson & Johnson this week, and I'm bringing up AstraZeneca because they're the same technology and the same pause happened over in our European counterparts. So what happened? Well, what happened was we identified here in the United States with Johnson & Johnson about six or seven cases, and over in Europe about 11 cases of an incredibly rare complication. These patients, both Europe and the United States, both of them developed blood clots from the vaccine. Now, blood clots, you may say to yourself, well, all right, I'm aware of blood clots. They have, uh, I know they can happen uh, for our Female listeners, if you've ever been given, for instance, hormonal therapy, blood clots are part of the conversations, part of the side effects that could happen. Blood clots can happen for a variety of reasons. But what's interesting is let's dive into the blood clots happening from the, from the vaccine. A couple things. First, they are rare. So it is about one in six million from the Johnson & Johnson. And with the AstraZeneca, it's about similar odds, about 1 in about 11 million. So 
these are rare complications. I really need to make sure people have that understanding of the rarity, right? And I say this not to dismiss what has happened, not to mitigate it either, but to just put it into big perspective of the rarity. Next, let's go over how it exactly happens. And I promise I won't dive too much into the granular details of science, but just to give you an understanding of how this happens. The best to our knowledge, right, and it's still being explored, this kind of complication is called VITT. VITT. The V standing for vaccine, the I standing for induced, and the two T's standing for thrombotic, which means blood clot, thrombocytopenia. Thrombocytopenia meaning low platelets. So VITT, the vaccine-induced blood clot, I see this because what's fascinating, all these patients, their characteristics on blood work shows they have really low platelets and they have blood clots. Sometimes these blood clots are in the lungs, in the legs. Here in the United States, they've been found in the brain. And the important thing to recognize from them, it is not, a, 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 not to say any blood clot is typical, but there's something unusual about these blood clots, right? So when we get a blood clot and they have this kind of laboratory finding, start thinking something's going on. And to the best of our knowledge, what we think is happening is that these blood clots are kind of triggering an overreaction of the immune system targeting something about the vaccine. I see this because we've seen kind of this rare complication in other medical interventions. For instance, for the listeners out there, if you've ever gone to the hospital and had to be a patient yourself, you know, you get a blood thinner called heparin, right? The shot given sometimes to your belly or to your thighs helps to thin your blood. But not to sound counterintuitive, heparin, a blood thinner, can actually cause blood clots as a rare complication. It's an overreaction to a specific protein of the heparin. So, yes, a blood thinner can cause a blood clot. It's kind of an autoimmune phenomenon. And I see this because that's what we believe is happening with VITT, the vaccine-induced blood clotting. We think it's an autoimmune process where something in our bodies identified something on the vaccine as unusual, the platelets surrounded it clustered, and it ended up forming a blood clot. That kind of process, I promise you listeners, is incredibly rare. With that said, in a pandemic, where we're hoping a vaccine is the holy grail to get us out of it, any kind of side effect is going to create some reservation. And so the CDC and the FDA, whether you, you know, and the not, no opinion here, whether it was appropriate or not to do this, they wanted a pause. And the pause was in an effort to allow clinicians to learn about this, A. B, that way we can identify if it happens, because these blood clots, will cause some general symptoms like fatigue, they can cause a headache if it's in the brain, they can cause shortness of breath if it's in the chest, or leg pain if it's in the leg. So depending where the clots are, depends on the symptoms. But fatigue tends to happen. So they wanted to make sure clinicians were aware, clinicians were taught of how to identify it. And it usually happens about five to up to maybe two weeks after the vaccine. So it doesn't happen immediately, it takes a couple of days. So five to 14 days later, they wanted to have a lot of good clinical education and at the same time supplemented with 
conversations with the community like we are doing today. If you've received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, you should be fine. Congratulations. If you have fatigue or any concerns, notify your healthcare professional. I will say the majority of the patients have been young, right, 18 to about 50, and predominantly females. In Europe, it was 9 out of 11, and I think in the United States, it's almost exclusive females. So it is a rare complication, about 1 in 6 million. The demographics seem to be more young and female-based, but as always, talk with your healthcare professional and discuss what your concerns are. With that said, email Kimberly and I. We're happy to take more questions about this. So again, rare complication. We're still trying to understand how it happens. And with that said, talk to your healthcare professional to discuss, hey, if Johnson Johnson gets back on the market, should I do this? Or should I pursue Pfizer Moderna? So with that said, Kimberly Munson, are you still there, my friend? I am. Excellent. Kimberly, do you want to reintroduce our amazing guest and let's launch into today's session? I do. Thank you, Dr. G. So first of all, I want to make sure Dr. Harrison, and I am so sorry, um, is, uh, can you pronounce your last name for me, um, Dr. Amali? Are you both on the line? Yes, it's um, Jenna Wardana, but you can call me Dr. Amali. Dr. Amali, okay, perfect. And Dr. Harrison, are you on the line? Yes, Dr. Yes. Harrison's perfect. <laughs> okay, perfect. Thank you. Great. So, um, again, I just want to introduce our guest speakers, Dr. Harrison and Dr. Amali, pediatric residents at the Johns Hopkins Children's Center. So, Dr. Harrison came to Baltimore in 2001 for his undergraduate studies in neurosciences at Johns Hopkins University and earned his medical degree at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Um, he's currently a first-year pediatrics resident at the Johns Hopkins Children's Center. He is a lay leader at Village Church in Hamden and has been serving as a worship leader for four years. Uh, Dr. Harrison is passionate about partnering with faith-based organizations and is currently doing research on how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting children in Baltimore City. Dr. Amali is originally from Hamdell, New Jersey. She completed her undergrad, undergrad studies at Princeton University and her medical school at George Washington University. She is interested in public health, health equity, and medical education. So welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Um, so let's start. I always like to kind of start with some basic questions, but there's a lot of you know concerns lately in particular as a lot of schools in Maryland have been reopening at least hybrid, um, particularly this last week, and, you know, is it safe for our children and grandchildren, nieces, cousins, and all that? Um, what is the risk of children becoming sick with COVID-19? So um, at this time, it appears that, you know, really severe illness due to COVID-19 is pretty rare among children. Um, in terms of the data, um, about 0.1% to 1.9%, so almost two out of every 100 uh, children that get infected with COVID-19 um, result in going to the hospital. Um, and we know that since the pandemic started, really less than, you know, 1% or 0.19% of all COVID-19 deaths uh, were uh, in children. Um, and I've looked at some data and 
since the pandemic, actually 10 states reported zero child deaths. So very, very rare. Um, it can happen, um, but what we're seeing is that children are more likely to have COVID-19 um, and pass it along in the community, but uh, very rare for them to have really uh, intense symptoms that would land them into the hospital and um, very rare to uh, end up dying from those uh, from COVID-19 itself. That is very encouraging news. Thank you. Um, for those that um, do become ill with COVID, what are some of the symptoms they are experiencing? So the symptoms that children experience can be pretty variable. Um, so definitely some of the common symptoms you associate with COVID-19 in adults can present in children too, like fever, cough, shortness of breath, muscle ache, runny nose, sore throat, and headache, as well as loss of smell or taste. But particularly in children, they can get GI symptoms as well, so belly-related symptoms like nausea, vomiting, belly pain, or diarrhea. So definitely keep an eye out for those things as well. So what is MISC or multi-system inflammatory disease in children? So MISC, um, you're exactly right, is multi-system inflammatory disease in children. And this is an uncommon but very serious complication of COVID-19 infection in children. So it typically happens several weeks after kids get sick with COVID-19. So a few weeks before they develop MISC, they'll have those COVID symptoms that I was talking about earlier. Um, and then a few weeks later, they develop MISC. And we think that this happens because of an abnormal immune response to the virus. So kind of similar to what Dr. G was talking about earlier with sort of an abnormal immune response after the vaccine, this is kind of similar in the sense that it's an abnormal immune response after kids get COVID. And so when kids get sick with MISD, the typical symptoms are several days of fever, and they often have other symptoms like belly pain, vomiting, diarrhea, rash, or red eyes. And like I mentioned, this syndrome is very serious. Um, we've seen a lot of kids get very sick with this. So if you notice that your child is having these symptoms, it's really important to stay in close contact with your pediatrician. I, uh, this is Dr. G. So I have a question. Uh, I want to ask, and I, I love having my pediatric colleagues here um, because, again, like uh, what you guys are seeing um, adds a lot of value and comfort to the communities um, at the moment in, in a sense of protecting the kids, right? We had schools closing, and now we're kind of reemerging and so forth. So my question is around the schools. Now that a lot of the schools have gone into hybrid, have you seen any uptick in more COVID testing and or COVID cases? Uh, in the children at the moment? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I know that since uh, schools were reopening, you know, in other places, not just in the U.S., uh, there wasn't really an association of upticks in cases, and I think that was part of the 
you know, argument, you know, schools are probably safe if conducted in a safe way. You know, however, there was, uh, there's new data from the AAP, which is the American Association of Pediatrics. And we know that over the past two weeks, um, they looked kind of uh, from March 25th to uh, April 8th. We know that there's a 4% increase in the cumulative number of child uh, COVID-19 cases. And it's really hard to say whether or not this is from going back to schools, uh, whether or not this is just from kind of reopening in general, uh, or maybe kind of a national awareness or kind of a national thought that COVID-19 is, you know, going down, and so maybe it's safer to, um, you know, go back to playgrounds and uh, whatsoever. So it's hard to kind of locate whether or not these uh, these clusters of cases are coming from schools. I think that's a really good um, kind of movement that we should have and we should take to kind of figure out our cases happening in schools. My guess is that, you know, given the fact that um, schools that are doing hybrid models are really uh, enforcing uh, really good um, ways to uh, decrease the transmission of COVID-19, whether that's, you know, uh, clustering of, of, of children and not kind of mixing groups, emphasizing hand washing, mask wearing. My guess is that those are probably not the increase of cases, um, but maybe rather uh, this kind of national reopening. And I'm sure that, you know, uh, kind of mask wearing and things like that are, they fluctuate among certain communities. Um, but, you know, more data definitely needs to be, uh, needs to be uh, studied. No, of course. And uh, sorry for that. Uh, yeah, hopefully you, you guys didn't see too much of the curveball. Um, just trying to get uh, a, a sense of recognizing in the community, you know, where we were all eager to have our kids go back and somewhat feel somewhat normal, again, to some extent. Um, and so I, I know everyone's holding their breath, making sure we, we chose the right thing to safely approach and go in uh, and from a COVID perspective. My, my last follow-up question, and this is actually just to ask you guys for the last year, um, you know, we've all tried to abide by the public health requests, uh, such as physical distancing, hand washing, face masks, and so forth. And a lot of that, to some extent, comes at the expense of social connectivity. Is there any quick comments you guys can weigh in from what you have seen as carers for these amazing young children on potentially what this may have done um, not, not in any way try to opinionize uh, it, but any mental health consequences you feel like you've had to step up and help with in children during this time where social connectivity has changed, if not uh, um, really had to kind of approach it in different ways? I can say that, um, you know, I think the pandemic has definitely taken a toll on everybody's mental health, adults and children included. Um, and so we've definitely seen uh, increased mental health concerns in sort of all settings. We've seen it in our outpatient clinic. We've seen increase in emergency department visits of, uh, you know, pretty severe mental health concerns. So I would say, you know, to parents, it's important to know that not all children and teens respond to stress in the same way. And so there are some common changes to watch out for in young kids. It can be excessive crying or irritation. 
returning to behaviors that they've outgrown. So if your kids were previously toilet trained but are starting to bed wet again, having excessive worry or sadness, unhealthy eating or sleeping habits. In the older kids, it's more in teens, irritability and acting out, changes in school performance. These are all red flags to look out for and definitely be in communication with your pediatrician about that. Actually, I, I really like that point that you stressed about every child to some extent is going to be reacting differently to how um, they're handling this. And, um, and I think it's also because, like, I'm, 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 I am an adult, but I care for adult patients. So I kind of have the looking signs. But the pediatric cases, as you said, they could be very different um, in a variety of ways as, as the child deals with it. And I even love that conversation about they were totally trained and you're kind of seeing a uh, regression, uh, it could be a sign of it to some extent. So truly appreciate it. And, and to the parents listening or the grandparents or any child caretaker, um, you know, please email us if you have any more questions about mental health in the children, um, especially other signs or symptoms. But thank you both. That, that was great insight. Kimberly, my friend, back to you. Sorry, I didn't mean to hijack the conversation. No, no worries. And, and, and just to comment on that, you know, as a mom of um, a child and I've, you know, witnessed some of those um, uh, symptoms that you mentioned, so I apologize. I mean, I appreciate you sharing those. And, and something that I've done as a parent is also to talk with the teachers, you know, to let them know, you know, how my child is feeling. And, and also talking with the school um, psychologists, most schools have them. Um, and they're also a great resource as well. Uh, a lot of schools also have some mental health resources, um, but I definitely, you know, as a parent, definitely urge to kind of uh, keep an eye out on those, on those signs, and as you said, it is such a stressful situation for everyone of all ages, so thank you for that. Um, you know, another thing I've noticed, um, as far as buses, you know, I look out the window, what used to be 20 kids getting on the bus is now one. Um, how safe are our children on the buses? And you know, and, I'm, and one of the questions I ask, I'm thinking about bus drivers on a typical day where the kids are up and down screaming, you got the music playing, they're trying to keep them safe as it is, but how do they ensure that they're keeping their mask on and social distancing as well as being safe drivers? That's a really good question. Um, I think, you know, the same strategies we're using to prevent transmission in school um, need to be used uh, for transportation. So that means, you know, as much as you can, um, emphasizing masking, uh, physical distancing, um, and even things like ventilation and, you know, more frequent cleaning. Um, I think that riders definitely should all wear masks. Um, I think things like including hand sanitizer dispensers on buses can definitely be helpful. And then even just marking off uh, or making it kind of impossible for students to sit next to each other. So just making one student sit on each row, um, except maybe for students in the same household, um, and you know, opening windows to increase ventilation. I think all of those things can definitely make school buses safe. I know that is definitely challenging, uh, you know, challenging things about that. But I think you know, kind of making sure that the same protocols are done in buses just like in schools when you limit, you know, 
students sitting next to each other, you're marking off spaces where students can sit. And you know, making sure that windows are open and there's good ventilation can definitely decrease that transmission on buses. Great, Great recommendations. Thank you. Um, now going back to masks, at what age should children wear a mask? And I know, you know for the younger ones, it may be something difficult to, to keep them on. Yeah, it, it definitely can be tough. Um, but really, when at all possible, children, children ages two and older should wear a mask. Now, are they, sorry, oh, Kimberly, can I, can I yeah, follow yeah, yeah. that with one quick second? So uh, my pediatric colleagues, I love, um, you know, uh, two and up, perfect. I'm going to ask you guys to share with us, to the parents, caretakers, aunts, uncles, you guys have a lot of unique, um, I don't want to call them tricks, I'm trying to uh, find another way of, of mentioning it, but I have a lot of unique ways to help children kind of abide by these medical interventions, whether it's the face mask or in the clinic getting shots or a variety of other things. Any, any recommendations to those parents who want to put that face mask on that two-year-old and they're like, we're struggling, <laughs> give us any guidance, any thoughts, any suggestions to make face masking acceptable to that rambunctious two-year-old? Yeah, this is a really good question. Um, and I think other things and tricks that we as pediatricians utilize in other things, like in toilet training, um, in kind of how do you deal with a child that's, uh, you know, a picky eater, can definitely be employed in mask wearing. I think especially at, you know, two years old, three years old, these are when children are learning to become autonomous, to think for themselves. And a lot of them will say no and no, and sometimes that can be frustrating. But I think remembering that um, this is a time where children are developing their own thoughts, um, I think, can be helpful in two ways. I think the first thing is, um, you know, having clear expectations. You know, the rule is that you're going to wear a mask. But I think with that, number two, is that allowing the child to make their own choices. And so just like when you're, you know, dealing with a, a picky eater, you want to make sure that you are giving them healthy uh, food choices. You also want to give them a choice, you know, uh, okay, today we're going to have an apple or we're going to have a banana. You choose. You can also do that with masks. I think, um, you know, two-year-olds and three-year-olds might have preferences on masks, whether that's design or things like that. And so you can present two masks. You said, you know, we're going to wear masks and demonstrate yourself wearing a mask and then say, you can have this mask, you know, with the butterflies, or you can wear this mask, you know, with the pink princess. And I think that and, and being persistent um, and, making, and making sure that you're giving them those two choices consistently um, and also demonstrating yourself that you're wearing a mask, I think, all reinforce um, both, you know, these are the set rules that you're kind of emphasizing and you're also emulating, and then also letting, uh, you know, your child also make their own decisions and um, helping them in their development in that way. I love the option one. I think that's a great suggestion. And you're, you know, uh, as a dad of a three-year-old, I, I, I think that's unintentionally, I think that's how we convinced her to where we were like, all right, which one do you want to choose? When we try to put the first one on, she said <laughs> no. And so, no, truly appreciate that recommendation. Kimberly, what about you? Uh, I think you have some uh, insight as well to provide uh, to our listeners uh, ways of helping the kids put on these masks. 
I, I do. Thank you. So another recommendation is, you know, I think many of us have seen those, um, you know, heroes don't always wear capes. But, you know, for children, you know, capes often come along with heroes. But I think it's kind of cool for them to kind of play it as, a, you know, maybe a little game pretend about mask and hero playing, kind of like Batman. He's cool. And Superman, and then put it on your mask, and you're saving the day. And I think it's something very similar, and they're saving themselves, they're saving their family, they're saving their friends, and just playing it off wearing a mask. You're, you're being a cool superhero. So I, I think that's something else to kind of um, have a little fun with it. And maybe add a cape to it, too. Why not? <laughs> excellent, excellent. Kimberly, back to you. I know, we, I know we have some community questions coming in for our, um, our guests today. Back to you, my friend. Yes, thank you. So um, a couple more questions, and a lot of these type of questions have been coming in over the last weeks, and we've kind of touched here and there. But um, the first one about playing outside with other kids, especially on playground equipment, what are your thoughts on them um, the, with the need of playing wearing masks outside? Yeah, so um, this one can be tricky, but... You know, it really is um, recommended that children wear masks when playing outside with other kids, especially when they're unable to physically distance. And, you know, when kids are playing together, they're often not six feet apart from each other. So I would recommend mask wearing. Um, but, you know, with that being said, we have seen a lot of parents come to clinic really nervous about can my kid play outside at all because they're really scared about their risk of contracting COVID. So I will say it is safe for kids to play outside and it should be encouraged because, you know, we want to get back to normal as much as possible. It is a great, um, you know, it's great for kids' mental health and physical health to get outside and play. So it is important. We just want to do it safely. So mask wearing and physical distancing when possible. Thank you. That uh, makes me feel better about my decision. My son wanted to go on the playground, and there was a ton of children on there, and not one of them were wearing masks. And I was like, sorry, another day. So um, thank you for uh, <laughs> confirming that I felt a little bad. Um, so the last one before I get to the um, other community questions is, you know, we are making plans for the summer. And I know a lot of summer camps were canceled this year, and, and some of them are being um, opening up this year, but what do you think are some of the summer experiences, um, particularly with camp, that are safest for children this summer? So, I don't know, yesterday was such a cold day, I'm just so excited for the summer, and I can't imagine, you know, all the kids are so excited for summer, and I just want to say, you know, camps can be safe experiences this summer as long as the camps implement the same sort of precautions that take place in schools. And so um, I think some tips or things to look for for um, quote-unquote safe camps or things that you can even ask if you're interested in going to a camp, you can ask the, um, you know, camp supervisors, or, uh, the camp supervisors, you know, are there small groups of campers that stay together or are there large groups? Um, do they remain six feet apart? Do they share any objects? Um, are, are they making sure that outdoor activities are prioritized? And then things like hand washing, you know, is hand washing uh, with soap and water taught and reinforced? Is mask wearing taught and reinforced? 
And then, you know, lastly, you know, especially our staff and employee encouraged to stay home when they have symptoms. And I think the key is that the more, you know, people a, camp a camper or a staff member interacts with, you know, and the longer that interaction with uh, is, the higher risk of COVID-19 spread. So I think, if, you know, if the camp is, um, you know, utilizing or, you know, implementing the same safety precautions as schools and, you know, asking those important questions can be really helpful. I will want to say, um, you know, as someone who, you know, has volunteered at church, has um, volunteered at summer camps, um, and I think, you know, a lot of people on this call, they might be thinking about doing, you know, a summer camp um, for kids at their church um, or their, you know, their faith community. There is on the CDC website guidelines how to conduct a safe summer camp experience. Um, so if you want, you could just Google search, you know, CDC guidelines on safe summer camp and that will pop up. And they have pretty detailed um, recommendations uh, for how to open safely, um, you know, how to conduct, uh, how to be safe when doing an overnight sleeping camp, kind of like all the questions you might have, um, I would definitely refer to that resource. Great. Thank you so much. And um, um, before we do get to um, the uh, community questions that are coming in, I just want to thank you for the great conversation so far with Dr. Hairston and Amali, and of course, Dr. G. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And as we approach some of these questions, um, I'm going to leave it open to the three of you, um, whoever is most appropriate to answer. And so um, the first one involves swimming. Um, does this pose any risk in regards to COVID for children and or adults? So this is Dr. G. I'll, I'll go first. So um, I remember this question really being asked around this time last year, maybe not around this time, maybe May or June. Dr. Zendelman was on, our infectious disease guru. And uh, one, one point he said immediately that uh, I, I, there was a humor with it, but I also recognize why sometimes it needs to be said. We, we don't need to uh, wear face masks, right, when we are swimming. So go ahead and swim. But swimming in of itself poses a low risk in two ways. One, making sure the volume of how many people are in the pool at that moment is low, and that's where the pool can maintain that level of, of, of control. I remember the uh, pools that opened last year, at least in Baltimore City, did have a cap of how many people could go in the pool area at the moment and how many could be swimming at a pool at a time. So continue. I imagine those same recommendations will still be given this year, so keep that in mind. And also definitely where the um, face mask when you're out of the pool and your face is dry. So while swimming, no. When you're out, yes. The risk should be relatively low, especially if the um, pool building or outdoor pool is abiding by capping how many people come in in addition to how many people are swimming at, at one time. Because remember, swimming is when the face masks would be off. So I, I think it's a low risk overall. So, Dr. G, um, just as a follow-up with that, um, you mentioned wearing masks when you get out of the pool, and I, and I know a lot of people like to sunbathe. So what are the risks of your laying back on the chair and having your mask off? Otherwise, your, the rest of your body would maybe be a different shade than your face. Yeah so, okay? from a sunbathing, yeah, so from a sunbathing standpoint, I think you just have to be more cautious of your surroundings. Um, are you, if you're sunbathing with someone else without a face mask that you don't know 
like you're not vaccinated and you don't know his or her status um, and if he or she has COVID and they're right next to you within three feet, like that, that I would just be cautious of your surroundings. Um, last year, we did see kind of uh, outbreaks happening at beach locations, uh, especially amongst young adults. So from my standpoint, I think sunbathing can be done in a safe manner. You just need to be cautious, making sure no one is, you know, people that you don't know are rather well physically distanced from you, six feet, if not more. So I, I do think it can be done safely. You just have to be cautious of your surroundings. Got it. Thank you. Of course, me, the sun, and I do not agree. I am always the one in the corner under the umbrella. So um, next question is, as far as planning summer travel, at this point, what are your thoughts in regards to flying and travel in general? But, but, let me answer this. And if our pediatric colleagues are still on the line, I'd love to hear their input, too, um, just because our, our our pediatric population is not vaccinated, um, so I want to hear kind of input from them. So from our standpoint, flying is a fascinating conversation to have about risk because of a couple things. I think most of the attention goes right to the plane. The planes actually have yet to yield themselves as super spreading events. And actually, there was a great report published in a top-tier journal, Lancet, that identified a patient around March of 2020 active with COVID, actively coughing in the plane. And in the plane of 115 people, the five that actually caught the virus were those all sitting around the person, right? Middle seats weren't, uh, they were still being filled and so forth. Everyone else was fine. The sixth person that caught it, caught it at the terminal, uh, at the baggage claim. So from my standpoint, the plane in of itself should be safe. The ventilations of planes are actually incredibly well engineered, so air gets recycled pretty frequently. And if the middle seat is left open, even better, you know, the fact that the rates go down, and especially if you can predominantly wear your mask the predominant amount of the time on the flight, low risk. I think the biggest risks really are going to happen in the airports and in the travels, right, when you get into taxis, especially if they're shared with others. Those are going to be the parts people have to plan for. I myself have gone to the TSA, uh, to the airport once to drop off a family member at a fly for a funeral. And I did witness the TSA did take kind of approaches to make sure people stayed apart more than six feet when they're in line to clear through. But I, I don't know if that's consistent or inconsistent overall. So what I would say to our listeners, it poses a risk, yes, but it can be done safely. And where you really have to keep your guard is going to be in the airports as well as the travel to and from the airport and how you're getting and managing them. So keep that in mind. I think you can travel and do it in a safe manner. But it, again, just like the sunbathing example, Kimberly, it's going to just take extra observation and caution. If our pediatric colleagues are still going, do you have any recommendations about children flying um, right now? Um, I think the only thing I will add, um, I totally agree, and I think, you know, transmission, in children, um, especially, you know, the high-risk zones um, while flying in adults are, are, are basically the same. Um, one tip is uh, definitely pack at least two masks per child. Um, there, you know, you know, during flights and travel, things definitely can get lost. So I think, you know, when in doubt, kind of be prepared uh, for that. Um, so that might be a tip that uh, people can utilize if they're flying. 
Yeah, and I would also add, um, you know, in I totally agree with you, Dr. G, about the sort of increased vigilance and just really being on the lookout. And just remember that um, it's important not just to be careful while you're at the airport and while you're traveling, but also in the coming days after the flight. You know, just keep an eye out. Monitor your child for symptoms and definitely be in contact with a healthcare professional if your child does start to develop symptoms. So just remember, it's not just the event itself, but the coming days that you have to continue to be careful on the lookout. Great. Thank you all um, for those great recommendations. Um, so I'm going to go, looking at the time, I'm going to go through two more questions. Um, the next one I particularly um, appreciate as we had just discussed this on a, um, a recent uh, congregational um, reopening, you know, and talking about how much has changed what we thought um, the way that the COVID was spread, you know, at this time last year, we had mentioned that services are not as much of a high risk as once thought, but what is the risk of using public bathrooms? Is there a risk when flushing the toilet and the aerosol spraying into the air? Uh, Kimberly, you're reminding me of the conversations we had last year uh, around this time. And so the, uh, and because to our listeners, we, we made that point. We made a point to say, be cautious. And I say this because what we were using last year at the time was coronavirus biology from its predecessors, from SARS-CoV and MERS-CoV. Both of them did show a high ability to be transmitted off of surfaces and to a lower extent, but still a significant extent, from aerosols, from toiletries and so forth. But we're a year later now. And the predominant, if not almost exclusive, transmission of this virus seems to be all airborne, meaning someone's got to breathe it out. Yes, in theory, if I sneezed on a surface, someone touched it, touched it, you could probably get it at that moment. But again, it just has to be, you have to witness the sneeze and touch it immediately, which I imagine our amazing listeners recognize that's not, that's a no-no. So the bathroom conversation also, the aerosol status, it's not been seen. No, we haven't had an identified case, uh, to my knowledge, of that. I will say the bathroom usually poses a different risk. Usually people's guards get let down and natural face masks can come down and so forth. So I would just exercise caution in the bathroom to continue being observant, minimize your time as much as you can, and especially going into bathrooms that also have a cap on how many people can go in. Like if you walk into the bathroom and you realize there's 40 people in there, you may want to walk back out as that you would get COVID for very, for the most common reasons, so people just breathing it out and you're breathing it in. But from surface to flushing, those, I think, I, I wouldn't let people, you know, people still should abide by the normal disinfected uh, 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 followings, as we've always done pre-pandemic, but I think we can be a little bit more um, uh, uh, side relief recognizing those haven't been identified as major spreading events. Thank you, Dr. G. And for this last question, um, I think I'm a, you know I'm gonna. There's a lot of questions about clarification. Uh, sorry, Friday afternoon. Or actually, I'm just Friday afternoon. Clarification of guidelines surrounding being around vaccinated versus non-vaccinated, and so just in general with comments. And I think, and, and this is also with important messaging about how we still need to continue social distancing and face masks after we have been vaccinated, but. If you're vaccinated and you have other family members or friends outside of your household that have 
not been vaccinated or they have been vaccinated? Should we wear a mask? Should we, wear, should we social distance? How safe is it? Yeah, so great question. So from my standpoint, I think the CDC has recognized that you could create a vaccine bubble. If you're hanging out with people who have been vaccinated, you can interact with them in a manner of pre-pandemic times. Um, not to steal a line from Prince, but you can party like it's 1999 uh, with that. When you are interacting with people that you don't know their vaccine status, or you know they are unvaccinated, I would default back to pandemic, public health, physical distancing, face masking, and so forth. The reason still being is we, we still don't have conclusive data to showcase that if you're vaccinated, will you still transmit the virus? The concern is, could they give you the virus and you end up passing it to someone else? That has not been definitively put to rest. Great biological conversation saying it's unlikely, but from my standpoint, you know, we're waiting for that definitive proof to some extent. So. If you're going to hang out with individuals who are unvaccinated or you don't know their vaccine status, I would just default to uh, pre, I would default to 2020 pandemic public health conversations that we've been having. If you're going to be with people who have been vaccinated, yes, you can act like it's 1999. I'm hoping our listeners enjoy that comment. If you, if you don't, then you can just act like it's 2019. We'll go to that. So back to you, Kimberly. Great questions, by the way. And by the way, our pediatric colleagues, Good to have you guys. Like you guys, you both have been amazing. Thank you. Yes, and I thank wanna... you for having us. Thank oh, you so much for having us. Yes, thank you both. Um, it's been fantastic having you join us, and uh, um, I always appreciate Dr. Shaw um, connecting us. So I, I hope you um, enjoyed it as well, and, and, and maybe you can join us again. So thank you very much for for sharing your expertise with us and sharing your morning with us. Um, any closing comments, Dr. G, before we wrap up, or, or just, Dr. Harris? Yeah, from my standpoint, in, in 10 seconds, just it's always great to be part of these conversations. Today is another example of us uh, making sure we get the uh, right speakers to touch on themes that the community, that you listeners, are asking or requesting. So keep it coming, and um, Kimberly and Dr. G will always be here. So Kimberly, with that said, off to you, my friend. Thank you, Dr. G. And um, we do have some questions regarding children and the vaccines. We do have a speaker coming up in two weeks on April the 30th. We'll address um, more data that will be available on April 30th call again um, regarding, uh, actually, yeah, April 30th with children and vaccines. So we're going to save those questions to address them at that time. So before I turn the call over to Reverend Teague, uh, please uh, join us next Friday on April 23rd at 11 a.m. for our next call, uh, topic to be determined. But now for those who would like to stay on the call, Reverend Teague will offer our closing thoughts and a prayer. Thank you, Kimberly and Dr. G. Always great to be a part of these calls on Fridays. Um, you can hear me okay, I think. Yes, thank you. So um, I know that Looking out my window right now, it's gotten a little cloudy, so um, forgive me for this um, remembering this morning, but when I, got in, when I got up and got out this morning, it was a lovely spring morning and the sun was just shining, and it struck me um, in that moment that throughout this pandemic, and again, as we've been witnessing the racial hatred and violence that's around us and on the news, um, that there have been these 
little moments of peace and beauty and awe. And I was just really struck by that with the sunshine and the spring um, blooms and trees that are out. And it was just one of those moments that I, I found myself stopping to savor. And somehow in those pauses and moments throughout this year, there has been inspiration and the good around me becomes more visible and highlighted. And it's given me hope, I think, to move forward in spite of some of the things that are still hard. So with that in mind, I offer this prayer. In the midst of what happens within us and around us and for us, we can stop and savor and then move toward the holy in all things. So let us pause. There is a power in space, in breath, in a pause. Before you respond, you get to choose hate or love, anger or empathy, frustration or opportunity, loneliness or togetherness, irritation or understanding. Take the moment. Be kind. Pause. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Teague, and thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Have a great weekend. Stay safe and be well. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.